Friends, don't you just love receiving gifts? But I wonder what makes a good gift. I spoke to Tom briefly over there for a second, and he said something very interesting. He said, spending a week with his brother down south was the best gift he's ever received. So sometimes a gift is great because of who gives it to us. Right? Sometimes a gift is great because it's valuable, like an expensive watch or, or jewelry. Sometimes a gift is great because it's a total surprise. It's something that we totally don't deserve. Good morning, friends. My name is Peter. I'm the ministry apprentice here, uh, training under Iggy. And today we'll be looking at a gift from the Bible. And this gift is all those things. It's, it's a gift so good that we can't do anything to earn it. We can only have it by grace. Before we begin, I can tell you now uh, that the main takeaway for this talk is right there in the title, that we're alive by grace. And that has three implications for us. Firstly, if you're not a Christian here today, um, the word grace, when it's used in the Bible, simply means something that we don't deserve, an undeserved gift. So the implications for us today are, firstly, realize you are dead. Secondly, be made alive in Christ. And secondly, and thirdly, receive grace faithfully. Let's look at God's word together. At the end of the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 1, Paul points to all these great spiritual gifts that, he gives the, that, that God gives the Ephesians. It's like he's pointing them to a grand scene on top of a mountain. But then when we get to this verse here, he looks to, his, he looks to the Ephesians who's reading this letter and he says, as for you, you are dead. It's pretty strange, isn't it? Paul shows us all these grand promises and then he turns and says, you're dead. So before we can look at the gift that the Bible is promising, first we have to realize that we were once dead. Let's read it for ourselves. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who now is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So firstly, who is Paul talking about here? Who is he calling dead? So in verse 1 we see he says, you were dead, meaning the Ephesian Christians that he was writing to. And then in verse 3 he says, all of us, to include himself and the Christians with him. And then he says, just like the rest, to include everyone. So he's saying that somehow this is a condition that affects all of us. So no matter who you are or why you're in church today, Paul is talking about you here. But why is he calling us dead? We can see that even as he talks about being dead, he speaks twice about living. In verse 3 he says, all of us also lived among them. And then, and then later on, he says, all of us, oh, in verse 2, he says, you used to live. And then in verse 3, he says, you also lived. So he's saying that while we might feel alive on this earth, we're actually spiritually dead. So we know that this, this death is not simply a physical one that he's talking about. We also know that it's not a figurative death. 
Because in verse 3 he says that this death leads to wrath. God's wrath, which is his righteous anger and judgment. So there are very real consequences. You know, sometimes a good friend of yours says, does something really stupid or really hurtful, and they come and apologize, but then you say, no, you're, you're dead to me. That's not what Paul is talking about here, because there is very real consequences. He's not just describing us as dead. He's saying we actually are dead. So this death that he's talking about is not figurative. Notice also that he doesn't say that we're sick. Because a sick person can still get themselves to the doctor. They can still take their medicine. They can still get surgery. There's always hope that they'll get better. But for the dead person, that's totally different. Our spiritual, Paul is saying that our spiritual heart rate is the flat line. We're well and truly certified dead. So if it's not physical, and it's not figurative, and it's not simply being sick, what is this death like that affects everyone, including you and me? In verse 1, Paul starts describing it like this. He says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, when it comes to doing the right thing before God, we have as much power as a skeleton. You see, the whole thing about being dead is that you're no longer able to do stuff, right? Sure, it'll be really sad, and everyone will miss you a lot, but practically speaking, you're, you're inanimate. You're missing an action. You have no influence, no power on the effect of what happens. Sometimes in movies we see skeletons and zombies that walk around and come back to life, but someone or something had to bring them back to life. You see, the very definition of being dead means that we can't do anything to help ourselves. So when Paul says that we're dead in our sins, he's saying that we're utterly powerless to do the right thing. So maybe now you're thinking to yourself, well, I feel, pre- I feel like I'm pretty good at doing the right thing. I've never rebelled against my parents. I've never failed an exam in my life. Except for when I got an A-, maybe. I've worked hard. I have a good job. I love my friends. I love my family. I serve here at church. Aren't I doing all the right things? Well, friends, let's just take a moment to think about that. We all know that we should treat others the same way that we want to be treated. But when we try to do that for a single day, to put everyone around us truly first before ourselves, we find that we can't do it. We know we should be more patient with the kids, with our parents, with people at work, and we find we simply can't do it. Around the world, there are children dying from hunger every day. Can we honestly say that we've made every sacrifice, done everything in our power to help them? We can't do it. And closer to home, this year, our vision is to love each other like Jesus. Can we honestly say that we love every single person that sits here just like Jesus does? We can't do it. In fact, friends, we stop, we try. We try to stop swearing. We try to stop drinking, stop speeding, stop being jealous. We try to start reading the Bible, start forgiving people who have hurt us. And we find that we simply just can't do it. And Paul says the reason is because we're spiritually dead. We're separated from the life-giving God. So if we can't live God's way, how do we end up living? And what do we end up following? There are three things. Paul talks about the world, Satan, who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, 
and the flesh with its cravings, with its cravings, desires, and thoughts. Firstly, the world in verse 1 refers to the popular culture around us. This is a culture that we live and breathe, often without any choice. It's a culture that tells us so many lies, right? It says you're worthy and you're valuable only if you have money, only if you're successful, only if you're beautiful. It tells us to go and gather up as many toys as you can and just enjoy life because life is about you. Never mind the poor that keep getting poorer as long as you and your friends and your family are on the more comfortable side. It says keep binge-watching Netflix and getting those likes on social media because that's what life is about. But deep down, we know that that's simply not true. And Paul is saying, without God, we're simply, we're simply dead in following the world's culture, just drifting along, along it like a piece of wood. Secondly, Paul talks about the fact that we're powerless against the influence of Satan himself. In verse 2, he says that Satan is a spirit who is now at work at those who, in those who are disobedient. In other words, all the evil and violence that we see around the world has its roots in the active influence of Satan. Recently, we've seen the fall of ISIS. But in past years, we've seen that spiritually dead people have and can be led to commit unimaginable horrors against others. Lastly, Paul says in verse 3 that we're gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following, following its thoughts and desires. Now, for some of us, the cravings of our flesh is simply fried chicken or, or steak, right? The guys. But for all of us, it's simply doing what feels good, right? That's what the world tells us. Follow your heart, do what feels good, and that will make you happy. But the truth is that so many of these things that feel good are simply not life-giving. For example, pornography or sex outside the commitment of marriage might feel good at the time, but ultimately they lead to unhealthy relationships and people feeling more lonely than ever before. We may recognize that and try to change, but we find that we can't do it. Because Paul explains here that on our own, we're dead and powerless against those desires. For others, maybe you struggle with a constant lack of self-worth. Maybe you're always jealous about what someone else has. Or you always feel like you're not pretty enough. And Paul says that on our own, we are dead and powerless against those thoughts. In our state of being dead, we simply follow whatever feels good. And we have no hope of doing what's, satis- what's truly satisfying or what's pleasing to our God. So where does that leave us? The end of verse 3 says that we're deserving of wrath. To experience God's wrath or anger is to ultimately be separated from Him. And to be separated from the life-giving Creator means to have nothing at all. Because He makes and He sustains everything in this world. If God is life, then being apart from Him is utter and complete death. We may feel alive, but spiritually, without Him, we're dead. We're inanimate, missing in action. We have no influence, no power over our eternity. And even if we wanted to, there's nothing at all that we can do to get back to God. So the first thing we can do today is to realize that we were once dead. As we continue in verse 4, the first word, but, is like a huge fence 
that marks where Paul starts, stops talking about death, and now he starts talking about life. So my second point today is be made alive in Christ. Let's read from verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, the great shift here is from death to life. So first let me paint the picture of what this life is like, and then we'll go back and see how we actually get this life. Paul is using the great contrast here to show that being made alive changes everything. Once we were dead in sin and powerless to overcome it, but now we're spiritually alive, and day by day, God refines us to better reflect him. Once we were dead, following the world, Satan, and our flesh. But now we follow Christ as as our king. His desires become our desires. His thoughts, our thoughts. His purposes, our purposes. Once we were dead and deserving God's wrath, but now we're alive and given God's grace. Once we were dead and separated from God, but now we're alive and in relationship with him. In fact, Paul says that not only are we made alive, but we're also raised up and we're also seated with God. Him, with God. Last Thursday, I watched Captain Marvel. I don't know if you guys have got around to that yet. And um, don't worry, I won't ruin it for those who haven't seen it. But in the final Avengers movies that's coming, I think we all know that something happens and the heroes probably come back to life, right? So what happens when they do? Let's take Peter Parker, for example. If he does come back to life, well, for those of you who don't know him, I'm sorry, um, but firstly, what happens? His, his relationship with Tony Stark gets restored, right? Because Tony's blaming himself for his death. And then he'll be there in, the, in, their, in their presence you know, as they strategize how to win the final battle. And then finally, his identity as an Avenger will be restored to him, right? Likewise, when God gives us spiritual life, we're made alive and brought back into relationship with him, firstly. And then we're raised up into his presence. And lastly, we're seated with him in our restored identity as his children. That's what Paul is talking about here. But even as Paul describes this new life, look at all the action words here and who is connected to all of them. When God made us alive, Christ is there. When he raised us up, Christ is there. When he seated us with him, Christ is there. And lastly, in the coming ages, Christ is there. So what's the emphasis here? It's that we're with Christ, and we're joined in Christ, and we're in Christ. So friends, what does it mean to be in Christ? I have a good mate who loves planes. Uh, Some of you guys might know him. Try not to guess. And last time we went to Japan, uh, we're at the airport, we're just walking to our gate, and he's just there pointing out every single... (laughs) Every single plane that's there. He's saying, this is an Airbus, this is, this is a Boeing 737 or whatever. And he's saying, you know, these guys, this, this one has this engine, this one needs this, this many crew. And, and he's the type of guy that's always on his app. You know, he's always checking all the planes and where they're coming and how all the air traffic controllers are, are 
you know, controlling them and managing them. But as we get to our gate, can we just stand there and admire our plane? No, right? If we want to get to Japan, we have to be in the plane. Right? And that's what it means to be in Christ. If, if we go back to the planes, like no matter who we are, we might be the pilot who can pilot the plane. We might even be the engineer who designed the entire plane. We might be the CEO who owns the entire company. Right? But no matter who we are, unless we're in the plane, we're not going to get to our destination. And it's the same with Christ. There's no use for us to just admire him. There's no use for us to just know a lot about him. There's no use or even, even if we tell others about him and we spend our time doing that, serving him. None of that matters unless we're in Christ. Going where he goes, thinking what he thinks, living how he lives, a life of sacrifice, praying how he prays, relating to our father how he relates to his father, and also inheriting from the father what he inherits from the father. Just like being inside that plane, our destiny is tied to his. We're made alive in Christ. So the second thing we can do today, oops, I forgot about that, uh, is be made alive in Christ. Right? Once we were dead, but God is offering to make us alive, to raise us up into his presence and to be seated with him in heaven. God alone achieves this through his great power so that even if we wanted to, no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't do anything to contribute to it. Be made alive in Christ. Maybe you're thinking to yourself now that this sounds pretty good, and I kind of want this, but how do, I, how do I actually get it? As we come to verse 8, Paul stresses that we're made alive by grace and grace alone. It's a gift that we simply need to receive through faith. And so my last and final point for today is receive grace faithfully. Let's read from verse 8. It is by grace, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. At the start, we asked each other, what is the best gift you've ever received, and why? I wonder what you said, and and what it was for you. Maybe it was your engagement ring, and you got that because of the special relationship that you're in. Or maybe it's your dream camera that your friends bought you for your birthday. Or maybe it was an all-expenses-paid holiday by your parents because they wanted to help you celebrate your graduation. You see, whether it's a relationship that you have to be committed to, or a present that has to be reciprocated, or something that you've achieved, friends, most of the gifts that we receive in this life, we we usually have to do something to earn them. But God's gift of life is not like that. It's totally and utterly free. That's what Paul is saying, that it's 100% free. Because even if you wanted to, there's nothing you can do to earn it. And this gift, it's far greater and far better than anything you've ever received before. To illustrate this, let me tell you a story. So just stay with me here. Imagine that, tonight's, that on tonight's news report, a royal wedding is announced. Let's pretend for a second that William and Harry had a younger brother, and we'll call him Oliver. 
How's that? You guys like that? Prince Oliver is charming and has a decorated military career just like his brothers. But the woman that he's decided to marry, she's not from a wealthy family like Kate. She's not an actress like Megan. She's actually homeless. She lives on the streets in the middle of the crime and the drugs and the prostitution. And the photos that the reporters dig up of her, she's dirty, filthy, unattractive, and she looks way older than she actually is. When members of the public are interviewed, they're in shock. They say that it's a disgrace, not only to the royal family, but to the entire nation, to have a princess like this one. Online, the royal family fanatics are tweeting that she's no match for him. He is royalty. She is a nobody. He is charismatic. She is unattractive. He wears checkered shirts, but she has a checkered past. But when the prince appears, he stares straight into the camera, and he says, and he declares that she is the one he loves. He declares that she is the one that he is going to marry, and no one is going to stop that. But behind closed doors, members of the royal family also firmly resist the marriage. They don't want to be associated with this woman. They bring countless arguments to the prince, trying to coerce him out of it, even threatening to take away some of his privileges in a last attempt to stop the marriage. But the prince is resolute. He endures the ridicule, the shame, the humiliation. He remains composed. And slowly but surely, he wins over his family. He wins over the public, and at last, they can get married. When they do, the wedding is the grandest royal wedding yet. Thousands upon thousands of people pour out onto the streets to catch a glimpse of the bride as the procession passes by. Millions around the world stop what they're doing to watch on TV with similar curiosity. The procession finally arrives at the cathedral, and as the bride steps out of her horse-drawn carriage, a strange silence falls over the crowd like an invisible blanket. The next few seconds feel like an eternity as the world is held speechless because she is beautiful beyond recognition. When the crowd finally comes to terms with their new princess, one by one they begin to applause as they erupt into cheers of joyous celebration. Friends, this is what it means to be made alive. By grace. From the violence and death of the slums, this lady was given a new life with the prince. Once in the company of drug dealers and gang members, she was now brought into the presence of the royal family. Once powerless and in debt, she now reigned with the prince, and everything he had was hers. And what did she do to earn all of this? Nothing. Nothing at all. It was all a gift. And friends, you know what? We are just like that bride. Because the Bible speaks of another marriage. One that involves God and his people. 2,000 years ago, the prince of heaven, Jesus, with full equality with God, came down to be born as a man. Just like the prince in our story, he endured the ridicule and the shame and the humiliation as he suffered for those he loves. He lived the sinless life that we could never live, overcoming the influences of the world, Satan, and the flesh. 
because only he was truly alive. Yet instead of becoming proud and self-righteous, he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet because he came to serve and not to be served. Ultimately, his invitation into relationship with him came through open arms on the cross. His proposal was far more convincing than the prince's because he gave his very life to prove his love. It was also far more selfless because he was perfect and complete without us and yet in love chose to die on our behalf to make us right with God again. Jesus came down so that we could be raised up. He bore God's judgment so that we could have God's mercy. He took undeserved punishment so that we could receive undeserved grace. Friends, if you're not a Christian today and you've recognized that life without God is spiritually dead, that simply doing what feels good is not life-giving, that despite your best efforts, you're failing to meet God's standards for your life, then Jesus' arms are wide open for you, ready to embrace you. No matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, who you are, he's offering the free gift of life to you with open arms. If that's you today, please talk to a friend or Pastor E or myself after the service. For those of you who have been paying careful attention to the passage, you may ask one more question. What about faith in verse 8? If it's all about grace, where does faith come into play in all this? Let's rewind a little bit and just imagine the moment the young prince proposed. It was probably fairly secluded and low-key because they didn't want the paparazzis to find out about them. And he wanted something that she could relate to, something simple. So maybe it was over a meal in a courtyard with with the candles and maybe some uh, fairy lights overhead. And sensing that the moment was right, the prince got down on his knees, produced a ring, and asked her to marry him. With her mind racing and her heart pounding, the lady remembers back to when they first met. She had so many doubts. How could a person like him be with someone like her? What kind of publicity stunt was he trying to pull? But in the recent months, having seen the ridicule and the shame and the humiliation that he's gone through for her, and the way he stood up to his own family to defend her, she knows now that his love for her is true. So she simply trusts him and says yes. Friends, faith is to say yes with humble trust. I'll say that one more time. Faith is to say yes with humble trust and to continue living by that yes. That's the relationship between grace and faith. To the homeless woman, there's nothing she could have done to earn the prince's love or the title of a princess. It was all by grace, and all she had to do was to humbly trust the prince and receive everything as a gift. So the third thing we can do today is receive grace faithfully. So friends, in conclusion, if we're alive by grace, how should that change the way we live? Firstly, let's talk about what happens when we forget God's grace. Three things. Number one, when we forget God's grace, we lose our joy. You can do this with me now. Say to yourself, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. How does your heart respond to that, I wonder? 
Does it sound like Jesus loves me? Yes, of course he loves me. I'm a fairly good person. Jesus loves me. No big deal. Not much joy, right? Or is it Jesus loves me? Loves me? Me? With all my failures and my sin? Really? I know he does, but that's actually pretty amazing. Right? And so when we forget God's grace, firstly, we lose our joy. Number two, when we forget God's grace, we start comparing ourselves with others. You see, when we think we can earn God's acceptance, we take a look at what we give God and what God gives us. And then we look at what others give God and what God gives them. And when that doesn't stack up, we say, hey, that's, that's not fair. You know, why am I serving so hard when others are not pulling their weight? Why am I living a holy life when others are compromising in so many areas? You see, when we forget God's grace, instead of being graciously loving to our brothers and sisters, we become judgmental and bitter, and we compare ourselves to them. So when we forget God's grace, we start comparing ourselves with others. Number three, we stop sharing Jesus when we forget His when we forget His grace, right? Because if God's forgiveness is obvious and it's not amazing and it's something we deserve anyway, then why bother sharing it with others? But if it's undeserved and free and amazing, then it's great news, and we can't help but share Jesus with others. And so, if you want to know whether or not you've forgotten God's grace for you, take a look at how much joy there is in your life, how much you're comparing yourself with others, and how much you're sharing Jesus with those around you. If we find that we have forgotten God's grace, what can we be doing? I have two simple things for us today. Firstly, stop trying. Stop trying to earn God's acceptance for you. Especially if you're always, always busy serving, maybe at the expense of other areas of your life, Maybe even at the expense of relationships with your family and even people here at church. Then you really have to ask yourself you know, are you serving with an attitude of humble trust? Or has it become something that builds up your reputation, makes others around you think you're so spiritual and so godly? Right? We need to stop earning God's grace and just receive it and serve Him as a response out of that. Secondly, we need to know God's grace through Bible reading and prayer. Like in today's passage, when Paul contrasts death and life, we start coming to an appreciation for just how rich God's grace is for us. Likewise, every part of the Bible shows God's grace, God's grace in, its, in its different ways, in aligning, in aligned with its genre and its historical context. And so as we faithfully read all of God's word, we can come to a full picture and of the immensity of his grace for us. So friends, today, let's remember that we're alive and alive by grace alone. And those three things that we can be remembering that are implications for our lives. Firstly, that we're, we were once dead. Secondly, that we're made alive in Christ. And thirdly, to receive grace faithfully. Friends, let's pray for God's help to do that. Father God, without you, we are so dead spiritually. 
Father, we've tried so many things in this life, just chasing after the things that feel good or the things that we think will complete our lives. And Father, before you now, we admit that they haven't worked, that they've led to death and emptiness and loneliness. But Father, thank you for your word today and the way you tell us that your life, that life with you is an amazing gift. It's, gift. it's a gift that's so valuable and so expensive that it had to be purchased by the blood of your son Jesus on the cross. Father, help us always to remember that and to stop trying to earn it. Because everything we do in this life can't get us any closer to you without Jesus. Father, we pray for joy, the joy of knowing your grace each and every second for us. So that as we live this life, as we try and love others, that grace overflows out of us and to them. So that we're never judgmental, we're never comparing ourselves, but we're always pointing others back to Jesus and living in Christ every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Peter, for your word to us today.